you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and we're just watching tornadoes rip through the southeast, but we're sitting here doing it together. Live with Detachment 075, telling the stories of air men and women worldwide. With your hosts, Daniel Black, Tanner Coleman, and Max Hagman. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whenever you are, we appreciate you listening. I'm Cadet Black, and I'm going to be your host today. Joining me is Second Lieutenant Damien Hitt. Second Lieutenant Hitt is a WESO, a Weather and Environmental Science Officer, and today he's going to tell us a little bit about what that is and, you know, their day-to-day operations. So uh, welcome, sir. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, it's a beautiful Sunday morning and I'm hearing about an AFSD I've never heard of before. So it doesn't get any better than that. Um, Let's launch right into it. What is a WESO? So a WESO is, I guess, the new iteration of uh, what previously has just been considered to be a weather officer. So as a weather officer, it kind of, you know, locks you into a box of, oh, you're just looking at the clouds or you're, you know, predicting thunderstorms and everything coming in. Uh, and what the change over to the the WESO naming is kind of getting towards is we're um, supposed to be more focused towards the environment as a whole. Um, so uh, a, probably a key turning point in this uh, was a couple years back when uh, Offutt Air Force Base actually flooded. Um, and for those who don't know, our, the weather wing, the 557th weather wing, is headquartered at Offutt Air Force Base. And so it kind of turned into one of those situations of, you know, yes, it's a environmental phenomenon, but it's not necessarily weather. So who's kind of responsible for the hydrology here and what's going on with that? And I think that's what really kind of started pushing. Um, you know, it may have been coming down the pipe already, but I think that's really what started pushing uh, the move towards the more environmental side of things so that now we're not just we're not just weather we encompass uh, hydrology geology uh, and everything along that and tailoring that not so much just for our resource protection like predicting thunderstorms or tornadoes or doing a flight weather brief but getting that more towards the uh, more so towards the red intel side of things where all right monsoon season's moving in how is that going to be affecting our troops but at the same time how is that going to be affecting hostile troops Uh, if we know a dust storm's coming in do we have the optics to be able to see through that and equally as importantly do we have or does the enemy have those optics that can see through that and can engage because if we do but they don't we have a prime opportunity to go ahead and move forward uh, when they're being blinded by this environmental event Mm -hmm. So, so you study the weather tactics associated with, you know, combat and all that. Um, that and again, and again, everything else, but that as well as what else listening. Um, so, you know, your main role, you do a lot of advising, I'm guessing. Like you advise the, uh, the officers above, you know, like, oh, here's what we should do based on these environmental conditions. It would be wise to do this, not do that. Um, it, it, am I right on track with that or... Yep. So most of most of what we do, uh, I guess, as a career field and even on the enlisted side is, uh, you know, we're not necessarily making those risk management decisions, but we're arming up commanders and operators in order to do that. So Hurricane Laura, uh, you know, priming the Barksdale Air Force Base commander, as well as the Fort Polk uh, installation commander, letting them know, hey, this is what we're expecting uh, as far as rainfall and winds for this hurricane coming through. Additionally, on the, you know, the operational side, we're able to, you know, take the B-52s here at Barksdale, for example, we're able to work with their pilots and their weapon systems officers to go, hey, you know, you're going to have really bad visibility at this time of the day when you're trying to put warheads on foreheads, you might want to try using this weapon system instead, uh, potentially using you know, laser, GPS, whatever they're using and tailoring that based on what we're seeing environmentally. Right. Okay. You know, that that's pretty cool. Um, definitely, definitely a niche AFSD. Um, I'm not going to lie, you know, when I, when we first found you uh, and I 
heard weather officer, the first thing I thought of was uh, something I've heard of, you know, special operations weather team, the the Sao T. And um, but then I looked up, you know, weather the uh, weather environmental science officers, and you know, I found something completely different. And you know, it's actually a lot bigger than I actually thought it would it would have been. So you said there's a how many how many squadrons are there for the weather squadron it's kind of a complicated question because uh, we're we're both centralized and decentralized as the weather career field so um there's the the 557th weather wing that's uh, headquartered at Offutt air force base uh they're basically our our functional wing um and so uh the like the wing commander he's working with our uh 83w so the the director of weather and the weather planning um, areas up at the Pentagon, they're kind of working directly with them. Under them, they have, I guess, really the the mechanisms that are needed in order for the you know the tactical level to take place. So right. you have first weather group that is made up of uh, the operational weather squadron. So you have. Um, the 15th at Scott Air Force Base, the 17th at uh, Hickam. You have, of course, the 26th here at Barksdale, the 21st out in Capone, the 28th over at Shaw, and the 25th over at Davis-Monthan. Um, so all of those bases or all of those operational weather squadrons kind of have a similar, I guess, mission. Uh, when you kind of when it kind of breaks down to it, you have the uh, actual support mission where, like for uh, the 26th, we provide weather support for the Southeast CONUS. So Texas over to the Atlantic, and then Tennessee down to the Gulf, uh, we provide resource protection and forecast support for so TAFs um, for Army sites is currently what we're still doing, as well as a couple of extra ones like Ellington Field down in Texas. Uh, it's kind of the one of the I guess, kind of oddities that we still do. Uh, and then WWA support. So we're providing resource protection, whether it be severe thunderstorms, um, heavy snow. So more than two inches in 12 hours of snow, mm -hmm. um, heavy rain, kind of that similar setup uh, for different installations throughout our region. And then we're also providing the reach back support and the uh, continuity of operations. So if a weather flight in, um, in the Southeast CONUS were to go down for whatever reason, uh, then the operational weather squadron that's responsible for that area. So in this case, the 26 would potentially be responsible for taking that support uh, and advising those commanders instead of that weather flight. Um, we also have a very big deployment mission right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, both we as the 557th and as the operational weather squadron, we provide reach back support uh, for those deployed members um, in whatever AOR they might be in. So, you know, they're reaching back, they're getting charts, they're getting satellite data, radar, whatever they need from um, basically to to make their forecast work and to support those downrange commanders. Uh, they're kind of getting it from us. Um, so that's that's the first weather group. Then you have second weather group, which is kind of, kind of like you said before, it's kind of niche. Uh, it's very unique missions for each squadron. So you have... Um, the trying to think and I'll just so I don't tell you anything wrong I'm actually just going to look it up to make sure I'm yeah definitely um so so you said a lot of things back there um a lot of complicated words that kind of flew over my <laughs> head but resource protection is the one that stood out for me so you yeah. do weather um which at first I thought was like the ATIS or something for uh, air traffic control towers but no but you also said resource protection so what is that what does that entail so resource protection is generally wwf watches warnings advisories uh so it's the the standard 557th watches and warnings are you know severe thunderstorms so if you're going to get more than for an air force base uh more than 50 knots on station uh or if you're going to get three quarter inch hail or larger uh, that's a severe thunderstorm. So if we, you know, we're predicting one of those coming onto a base, uh, obviously, you know, 50 knots and three-quarter inch hail, that's going to, uh, you know, cause problems on a base right. for sure. 
And so kind of what we're doing there is we're, you know, forecasting that out saying, hey, you know, this is from, you know, 11 o'clock today all the way until three o'clock. We're expecting severe thunderstorms on stations. We're expecting that 50 knots or 50 knot gusts uh, and then that three quarter inch hail. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll tailor that down if we're looking at it. And a few hours later, it looks like it might only be an hour long from 11 to noon. We're going to provide that information out to the units on that base as well as the base commander. So he or she can make that decision of, all right, we need to shelter in place or, you know, we need to pause this field exercise and get all of our folks, you know, into shelters or whatever they need to do there is uh, kind of how that, that breaks out. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Now, I'm, I'm sure that requires, you know, a degree of knowledge into meteorology and all that. So was that your major in, uh, in college? Yes. So I did major in, uh, I guess it was research meteorology. Research but, meteorology. So uh, second weather group. Um, they, like I said, they have a pretty unique mission. Uh, so you have the 14th weather squadron, um, and then I want to say they have seven or eight squadrons that each kind of do their own thing. So the 14th does climatology. Mm -hmm. Um, they're basically kind of like a big data center, uh, and they'll realistically, they kind of support the, what other units need it. So if a weather, say for a really, really good example is if they're wanting to put in a, a new runway at an airfield. Mm -hmm. uh, you know it's it sounds you know what an ATIS is so it sounds like you might have some flight experience already no but go ahead break it down for me anyway okay so uh generally when you're when an aircraft is taking off you want to take off into the wind um that mm -hmm. way you have as much um basically airspeed on the ground as you can before you run out of runway right um so knowing which direction the wind predominantly comes from kind of drives which way you're going to actually literally pave that runway. So if you know that your winds are for, you know, the majority of the year for 215 days out of the year are going to be directly out of the north, well, you're going to build a north-south runway. And if you know that for the rest of the year, they're predominantly out of, you know, northeast, if you're looking at building a secondary runway, then you'd want to line it up northeast um so that's really big thing with climatology there and you can look at it as you know flooding too if in the past when we've gotten x number of inches of rain which generally happens every you know x number of times out of the year how much flooding can you expect you don't want to build you know a lot of expensive buildings uh and you know simulators whatever you're building in an area that's prone to flooding you know right. five or six times a year yeah. So, you know, building from building runways to, you know, reading the weather and, you know, doing all those, uh, like, well, which sites should you use, which, which shouldn't you predicting what the enemy um, would, would be able to use. You guys do a lot. So pretty much a broad spectrum. You're talking about, what was it, command groups that did different mission sets? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, looking at the the different the different squadrons and the different groups that kind of have different breakouts within uh, the weather wing itself. Mm -hmm. uh, wait, what was it I said? Command squadrons? Am I just putting two words together? And made sense to me. You got your message across. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So, also, you you said you were right now stationed in Barksdale Air Force Base, right? That's yes. a major command. I should know. Yes. Um, <laughs> Did you have to learn any of that stuff going through ROTC, like the major commands? And Absolutely. Uh, yeah, major commands. Um, I guess one thing that I wish I had learned in ROTC would have been the combatant commands because, you know, we we actually produce a set of uh, a set of products for uh, for Stratcom um, that gets, uh, my understanding is gets briefed all the way up to the Stratcom commander, the four-star there. Uh, so I... Uh, it's the strategic command, so it's one okay, of the gotcha. one of the combatant commands. Um, gotcha, gotcha. And see, it's a yeah, uh, like like I said, I wish I had learned that in college. That way, when I, you know, got to my squadron and they're like, yeah, we need to do this chart for Stratcom. I'm like, that's great. What's what's a Stratcom? So, <laughs> you know, that's definitely the things you want to go unknown. Yeah, because I've never heard of the combatant commands before. That's brand new to me. Yeah, yeah. So that's 
there's there's a lot of things that you have to learn in uh, in college on top of just getting your degree. So I understand uh, kind of needing to narrow that down. But if I could go back, that would be one thing that I wish I had learned mm-hmm. that and uh, how to write an EPR. Uh, but that's EPR. more military acronym. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the enlisted performance report. So uh, ah. by by specialty, I am a weather officer. Uh, but by the duty title, I am actually I'm a flight commander right now. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm filling a captain billet at the moment. Um, basically, it's the the squadron didn't have enough captains, and they needed a flight commander spot filled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the my commander picked me out to uh, to fill that spot. So I currently command a flight of about thirty members. Um, that's responsible for about half of the. Uh, forecast products and everything that we push out every day. Wow. Okay, and you're doing that with your butter bars, right? They didn't. They didn't throw you a <laughs> captain. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm. I'm still doing that as a second lieutenant. Uh, unfortunately, um, I have run it past the boss. See if maybe we could, you know, meet in the middle somewhere. Maybe, maybe first lieutenant a little early, but mm-hmm. yeah. No, that didn't seem to. That didn't seem to go through. So. So it seems like they have these roles that need to be filled, but they don't have a lot of weather officers to do it. Is is that correct? Yeah, that's that's a pretty good assessment of it. Uh, we are, I guess, from you know talking to talking to different folks and folks that have been in the career for longer than I have. Um, I don't know if we've ever not been critically undermanned. Um, I know that the Air Force always needs weather officers. Uh, talking with a lot of folks that got picked up uh, this year to come be weather officers. Uh, generally, the one of the requirements to be a sorry, not weather officer, WEZO. I'll catch myself on that one. Um, <laughs> one of the requirements to come be a WEZO is you need a degree in uh, some environmental science. Uh, previously, it was specifically you had to have a weather degree. Um, mm-hmm. And there is kind of a backdoor option there to come be a WESO uh, where you have a STEM degree. Uh, and they'll send you to uh, what we call the basic meteorology program. So they'll actually send you to the Naval Postgraduate School uh, up in Monterey, uh, I believe California. Uh, so they'll, they'll send you up there and you'll get your meteorology certificate, which is a it's a combination. It gets you familiar with, you know, what weather actually is. So you can uh, basically realistically work with our enlisted uh, folks because they, they know the weather piece. It's our job as officers to kind of focus more on the environmental science piece. Uh, But so you'll go up there, you'll get your certificate. uh, And then from there, you'll go to your squadron or you'll go out to tech school or whatever you're going to do from there. Um, so that's that's an option. I know a lot of folks that have been reaching out to me for you know kind of questions and mm-hmm. uh, just kind of hey, what's what even is this? Because a lot of them are chem majors or you know physics majors or stuff like that, where it's it meets that STEM major requirement and they're going to end up going to the naval postgraduate school uh, and get their certificate. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, a lot of folks are kind of confused on hey, I don't have a weather major. What's why am I going to do this weather thing? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what are the what are the hours like as a weather? So, it depends very heavily on where you are and what you're doing. So, at generally at a operational weather squadron, which currently, and looking at the the base list for this this current year selection, um, your first assignment is going to be at a operational weather squadron or to an army support unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so at an operational weather squadron, you're generally going to be doing shift work, uh, as a, as a Lieutenant. Um, and then generally you'll do about two years at an OWS and then you'll PCS out to, you know, go be a weather, uh, a weather flight commander or do some other job. Uh, but generally the hours here at an OWS, uh, going to be kind of dependent on manning. Uh, so like we were kind of talking about earlier, uh, mm-hmm. Right now, we're working 12-hour shifts. Uh, we kind of have been for quite a while. It's been a combination of COVID constraints uh, where we have, you know, two different teams that can work opposite shifts from each other. 
uh, and then that way you don't have that kind of cross pollination between the two potentially uh you know running that risk and also driven with that kind of increased our manning requirements uh so yeah we've been on 12-hour shifts the majority of uh 2020 uh like i'm like i'd mentioned to you um i got fully floor certified uh to work on our ops floor back in march uh and mm -hmm. i worked 12-hour shifts uh from 8 p.m to 8 a.m all the way up until august uh, when i got selected to be the you know move upstairs to be the flight commander yeah. uh so i guess more as a as a flight commander now my by the books um my Hours are supposed to be 7.30 to 4.30 with an hour lunch break. Mm -hmm. uh, realistically, it kind of depends on, you know, especially as, as a flight commander, it's focusing on your troops. And mm -hmm. so my hours kind of adjust to meet their needs. So my flight's on uh, our mid-shift right now, so they generally leave at 8, 8 a.m. Uh, so if I need to come in early, people have questions or they need me for something, I'll generally go in at about 7 or 6.30. Uh, for whatever is needed and uh the end of my day is kind of determined by the workload and what my squadron commander needs of me so if it's you know uh, a staff meeting day uh, and then we have a lot of do outs that are required for that day well it might be 5 30 or 6 before i go home um wow and then if you know manning requires it or if i'm needed to work the off floor so november and december uh, i actually worked I want to say 15 midshifts each month uh, mm -hmm. in addition to doing the flight commander job. So I was, you know, 8 PM to 8 AM. I'd be shooting out as many emails as I could. And then a lot of times I'd be staying at the office until 11 AM or noon, uh, taking care of extra requirements to doing paperwork or whatever, uh, or back briefing my commander on a situation and then go home, go to bed and I'd be back in for work at 8 PM. So it's, uh, you know, it has its it has its privileges of, uh, you know, taking extra opportunities and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but it can also, uh, yeah, it can take a lot out of you, too. Um, so you need to you need to go and understand that that at the end of the day, uh, we have a mission and that mission needs to get complete. And even as a flight commander, my mission might not necessarily be operational. Uh, I personally, I truly believe that my day-to-day -day mission is taking care of my airmen, uh, you know, big A airmen, my airmen, NCOs, uh, senior NCOs and officers. Um, and if that requires me to, you know, do a 12 hour or a 14 hour or 16 hour work day, then, you know, that's what I need to do. Yeah. And I'm sure they see that too. You know, there's like, this guy's really putting in the time for us. Um, you know, is that, you know, what kind of does leadership mean to you in that regard? Uh, so yes, like you said, um, it's the, the perception there. And that's why, honestly, I kind of like that we as officers come in and we start doing that shift work because we get our buy-in from our folks there of, hey, they see this this lieutenant, you know, unnamed lieutenant XYZ is sitting there doing shift work for them. That way, when they go to weather flight later on and that same airman is working with that lieutenant and you know, now a captain or a major or whatever they may be, uh, you know, they already have that buy-in of, you know, this person has literally sat through the worst tornado outbreak in 10 years on a midshift right next to me, you know, uh, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and we're just watching tornadoes rip through the Southeast, but we're sitting here doing it together. Um, you know, it's not uh, some other, you know, career fields where it's a lot more, you know, divided, for the enlisted officer side where they don't see an officer for days and days at a time, as opposed to every single shift, we have an officer on the floor that's working hand in hand with our airmen, our NCOs. Uh, and I think it's really important now as a flight commander where I'm, you know, it's, it's one of those, we're going to start up mock PT tests uh, here in the next month or so. Uh, and this coming week, I'm going to go do my mock PT test. So that way when I, shoot that email out to my my flight i can say hey i need you guys to start doing mock t mock pt tests i already did mine you know i'm leading from the front on this with you guys i'm going through all of this with you uh, and i can ask my airmen too hey 
you know, I need you to work an extra mid shift here. I need you to, you know, adjust for us. And I've already got that buy-in of, hey, they've seen me pulling 16, 18 hour days, 60 hour work weeks uh, yeah. for months at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's that's how you, you get that buy-in. Got it. Yeah. And just logistically, out of, out of curiosity, because we're trying to do the same thing here with the, like, how do we accomplish PT? And that was kind of my, my thing last semester. So just, just curious, out of curiosity, how, how you guys, what is a mock PT test? Like, how are you guys accomplishing that? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, and I'm honestly, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it uh, myself. Um, the nice thing about, so, so a mock PT test, I guess on the ROTC, ROTC side, we called it a, a PFD or an FD or whatever, you know, a fitness diagnostic is what I think the term we used for it. Uh, so one saving grace of shift work is, uh, you know, when it's midnight, there's not a lot of people at the gym. Uh, so if it's cold outside, there's not a lot of people in the gym. Uh, it's a lot safer than to go and use that indoor track or even to go use the outdoor track if the weather is nice outside uh, without having a bunch of folks around and running kind of that, having to run that decision-making matrix of, you know, is it, you know, worth the potential exposure uh, to go do a mock PT test? But, you know, all all we are asking is, you know, you and your supervisor, you go do a PT test and, you know, we're not even looking for a, yeah, this person passed with this score type deal. We just need to start getting people back into, uh, back into that mindset of, you know, we are a whole airman concept. We have to take care of ourselves emotionally and physically and everything. Uh, So staying in shape is part of that Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So, you know, aside from the PT side, you know, they see you doing that first. That's that's how you get, you know, leading from the front, doing that first, um, pulling those long hours and really letting, you know, your airmen know that, you're willing to put in the work, um, you know, really just leading from the front there. You're not going to ask them to do something you wouldn't do yourself. And I think that that's an important thing. That's a large characteristic of leadership that, that you know, we can't overlook. So uh, it, it's good to, you know, hear that it's kind of, I don't know where I'm going with this one, but it's good to hear that <laughs> um, officers everywhere are, are, are doing that, that we have good leadership in the Air Force. Uh, yeah, but if, if we could just take it back for a second and talk about your alma mater, Embry-Riddle, Daytona. That sounds like one awesome place to study. Airport right there. You know, everyone here in the detachment, or not everyone, but a lot of us are aviation geeks. You know, we just we just kill for all the planes, aviation, piloting, all that. That's why we're here for the Air Force. So I, I can imagine going to a college located at an airport must have been a pretty spectacular experience. Absolutely. Uh, it's, yeah, it is hard to, to put into words. Um, I, growing up, I was always into airplanes and everything. And, uh, you know, I, since I was a, a very small child, I had already made up my decision. You know, I want to fly airplanes. I want to go to the Air Force and I want to uh, put those two dreams together. Uh, and so, you know, going to Ember-Riddle there in Daytona Beach was absolutely awesome. Uh, shout out to Debt 157. Um, but, yeah, being there on the campus uh, right next to the airport with, you know, the the little Cessnas taking off all the time. That was cool and everything. But then you have, you know, the actual jetliners that are taking off constantly. Uh, anything extra that comes through. Day- Daytona Beach is a, you know, pretty big hub, too. Um you know, the next closest airports, uh, Orlando, uh, and a lot of the, the military aircraft would probably rather come into a, a smaller airport rather than deal with a large airport like Orlando. So we had the Thunderbirds coming in all the time, uh, C-17s coming in all the time, uh, aircraft from, from Patrick uh, or from, you know, Moody, um, Hurlburt, kind of all coming around. Um, you know, we'd see A-10s every now and again. It was just a great time and you know from everyone everyone even just from freshmen all the way up to our seniors and even myself as a as a fifth year senior walking across campus going to class and uh you know 
airplanes taking off and you know i haven't seen one of those in a while let me you know stop and watch for a minute and yeah. uh truly just a, a wonderful experience and living on base now uh, it's you know a lot of people kind of complain about the noise and everything but for the majority of the day uh, you can almost always hear an aircraft uh, either taking off or if you don't know already b-52s are very loud um, they have four very loud engines um, that are kind of squealy uh, and so they squeal they squeal they squeal and they're they idle for a very long time before they actually go and they do anything um, so living on main base pretty close to the pretty close to the runway uh, I can at all times of the day uh, just hear b-52 sitting on the ramp waiting to go uh, which I understand, you know, it can kind of get annoying if I, it's, if I'm on a mid shift and I'm trying to get some sleep at, you know, 2 PM and people are mowing the lawn and, you know, now on top of it, I also have this aircraft engine that's, you know, squealing at me, but it's pretty awesome driving around uh, base and just seeing aircraft take off, uh, going and doing other things or, uh, you know, seeing different stuff come through like the, the C-17s or with, uh, you know, the president came in to do a, a rally here and, a few i guess several months back um and so he actually landed here uh, on barksdale which is really awesome to see mm -hmm. um so now it's if uh if you like airplanes uh yeah the air force is definitely the right way to go <laughs> oh, you don't say <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no i think um a lot of us here you know share that affinity and um you know for so you said you mentioned you wanted to be a pilot going in and you know now you're you're also you also just applied to uft is that right that is correct i right. uh put in my application back in november and i should hear uh here in february yeah so, so we're all rooting for you um but what is the difference because i've heard of upt but i have not heard of uft so UFT, so uh, undergraduate flight, flying training um, kind of encompasses all four of the, uh, basically of the rated career field um, undergraduate training. So that'd be UPT, uh, URT for the RPAs, UCT for the CISOs, uh, and then UABMT for the air battle managers. Um, on the active duty side, at least so, backing up in college it was you know we might have been interested in the other career fields but for the majority of us it was always upt we wanted to go be pilots and so upt would be we would be talking about uh and so that's kind of how we would reference it here on the active duty side uh, if you're putting in an application kind of similar to how it is on the rtc side uh you're not necessarily applying for upt or urt you're applying for uft so flying training as a whole uh, you still get the, you know, you get to rank your preferences. So if you want to be a pilot first or, you know, an RPA first, and then maybe a pilot and then maybe a CISO, you still get that opportunity. Uh, but you're putting in for basically saying you want to go do a rated job and the Air Force will tell you from there uh, where they need you to go. So, so there's that opportunity there, you know, once you're, you're active, you know, Air Force military, you're doing your job. You've been doing it for a year and a half, you said? Yep. All right, yeah. So you've been doing it for a year and a half, and now, you know, you decide, you know, like, you, you want to take your career in a different direction, and they have these opportunities for you to do that. So are there that many opportunities, you know, all around? Do, do you see that a lot, or is this pretty pretty rare thing you're pretty much stretching to, to achieve this? Uh, so... I wouldn't really say a stretch necessarily uh, for the, for the rated side, um, you know, the air forces knock on wood, you know, hopefully the air force will always need pilots, always need APMs, CISOs and RPAs. Mm -hmm. um, and if they can't get enough out of ROTC or the Academy or OTS to cover those slots, then, you know, the next pool to pull out of is always going to be active duty. Um, so on that, I don't ever foresee that going away. Uh, you know, as long as, again, as long as the Air Force needs pilots, uh, I don't ever foresee them 
uh, getting rid of that opportunity. As far as, uh, you know, necessarily cross-training into a different non-rated career field, I'm not too familiar with that process myself, uh, and so I wouldn't want to necessarily speak on it and misspeak or anything. Got it. So, so career switching is kind of, um, you know, it, wouldn't you call it career switching? Be cross-training. Yeah, cross-training. Cross-training, okay. That's that's the terminology I was looking for there. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so, so the process of, you know, switching your career cross-training, uh, that you know, I, I would imagine, you know, if your, your degree was in research meteorology, if I remember right, and, you know, your, your WESO, I imagine that next step would have been, you know, maybe, maybe Southie. Would you have any desire to do that? Or do you know, do you think you could speak on what that career field looks like? Um, so I don't want to uh, necessarily misspeak on this. Um, my understanding that was that uh, Southies were kind of getting phased out, at least on the weather side. So on the enlisted side, um, which is you know a whole different conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. But my my understanding is that the the Southie career field is kind of, at least on the officer side, is kind of uh, being phased out. Um, there's not really a lot of need for it, I guess is my understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess normal weather officers or, or WESOs are kind of able to, to fill that leadership uh, role that they would need there. Um, that said, if kind of that, you know, that high speed operational um, approaches for you, not to say that you can't get that as a WESO. So uh, if you're in Army support, um, basically how that kind of works is you as a Air Force member get uh, are a part of a flight detachment or a squadron that is working hand-in-hand with Army at Army facilities. So uh, Fort Hood, Fort Bragg, uh, Fort Drum, uh, I believe Fort Campbell. Uh, there might be a few more, but there there are opportunities for you as a Air Force uh, Weso to go work with the Army. And if um, you know your Army counterparts uh, have to get you know jump certified or airborne or air assault certified or anything along those lines. Uh, my understanding is that there's generally the opportunity for you to kind of do those same certifications. That way, when your army unit deploys that, you know, the army unit that you're attached to deploys and they need to go, you know, jump out of airplanes or do whatever they need to do to do their mission, you as the weather, um, you know, advisory team there for the commander are able to go along with them and actually do what they're doing. So not necessarily to say that you know, those opportunities don't exist anymore, but uh, you might have to start looking more towards the Army side as opposed to the kind of Special Forces side of things. Gotcha. So they're definitely getting phased out. That's my understanding of it. Um, okay. I could be 100% mistaken on that, but that's just kind of what I've been hearing, uh, you know, around the unit. Oh, okay. All right, I see. So, uh, you know, we're approaching our last little segment here, and it's going to have to do with leadership and what you'd like to tell the cadets at detachment 075 you know from your experience what good leadership you've seen what bad leadership you've seen and you know what you want leadership to look like for the future uh air force officers so if you could just give us a little insight into as what that might look like you know your your perspective your definition of leadership and what you'd like to see from us I'll speak, I'll speak career field first and then kind of, you know, out from there. Uh, and, you know, really as a, as a new WESO, your job is to come in and really as any lieutenant going anywhere, uh, you're basically the exact same as an airman. Your job is to learn what your job is going to be, uh, whether it's, you know, weather forecasting or jumping out of an airplane or flying an airplane, whatever it is, um, you know, what is expected of you and what, personally, I would expect of you and what I, you know, uh, the, the two lieutenants that I have in my flight that I actually supervise, I've told them the same thing is, 
you know, now is your opportunity to learn. You make your mistakes early as a, preferably as a second lieutenant, uh, making those mistakes. You get a little more leeway with um, and really acclimate to the Air Force lifestyle there. Um, as far as leadership goes, uh, depending on what your AFSC ends up being, uh, you might not interact with an airman uh, in a any sort of supervisory role until you're a you know a captain or a major. Uh, as a weather officer, I've heard for you know security forces and for maintenance, um, those are kind of the big, more airman heavy jobs. Of you know you're you're going to come in, you're going to start supervising airmen and NCOs right away. I got here and day one, I was supervising a tech sergeant. Uh, this gentleman's been in for, I wanna say 15 years now. Uh, and here I am as a brand new butter bar and I have to lead this tech sergeant. I have to lead him as well as make sure that, you know, he's doing what he needs to do to continue with his career growth. And the, you know, two extra staff sergeants and five or six airmen under them I'm responsible for all that. Uh, and really what it boils down to is no matter what, no matter if you're supervising airmen, if you're not, if you're supervising other officers, or if you're just in a flying squadron, just doing your job and, you know, taking care of all the lieutenants around you. That's really the biggest takeaway is I can give you is just take care of your folks. Uh, they'll take care of you. Um, you get, you know, a great opportunity. Like I got to be a flight commander. Now I have, Instead of having a tech, a technical sergeant to, to take care of and that be my troop, I now have 30, 35 individuals who every single day, you know, my first thought when I wake up is, you know, what can I do for, you know, my airmen today? You know, what, what paperwork do I need to push to help them get where they need to be? Uh, what opportunities do I need to seek out so that I can arm them up for what they want to do in the future? Uh, and, you know, we, we can talk about the you know, writing good packages for awards or, you know, writing good performance reports with the, the EPR, the OPR and all that. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, I think just, yeah, anything, anything that you can do, your focus should be on taking care of big A airmen, that is airmen, NCOs and officers. Just being there for your folks, right? Making sure they have what they need to be successful and just being there for them, letting them know you care, letting them know that, you know, whatever they need, they can just go to you for. Absolutely. All right. You know, you know, and, and something really resonated with me when you're talking about that, you're saying, and this is a situation I've heard of, you know, a lot is like you go in with your butter bars and you are right out of the box. Um, you are, you know, in charge of supervising and, you know, making sure that a technical sergeant who's been in there for 15 years um, is doing what they need to do to get the job done. And what was, what was your approach to that? So honestly, um, I, my then flight commander was a first lieutenant, uh, and with her moving up into the, the flight commander role, she was giving me her tech uh, as my new, uh, my new troop, my new supervisee. Uh, and I talked to her about it. I kind of discussed and it discussed it with her. Um, and you know that's that's always a really good thing of, you know, reach out to other officers and other senior NCOs and kind of get their perspective on everything, but. What it ultimately came down to is I sat down with this tech in our break room and, you know, he and I can just kind of just had a talk about it. And we said, you know, I leveled with him. I said, hey, listen, I'm about at the time I was, what, 23, 24 uh, with zero real effective Air Force experience. Uh, and I, I told him that. I told him I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea how to actually supervise somebody. Uh you know, we, we have the experience in ROTC of like you're supervising somebody and you're doing, you know, the paperwork and the evaluations and whatever. And, you know, it's kind of made up. It's kind of in a vacuum. It kind of doesn't matter. It's good experience. But at the end of the day, once you get on active duty, it's a completely different ball game. And I, I told him that I said, I have no idea what I'm doing and I need you to help me help you. Um, and so a lot of times, yeah, it's going to be, 
you know, in our experience, and we tell other lieutenants coming in, if you're supervising a tech, a lot of times, realistically, they'll probably be supervising you. They're going to be helping you out, kind of feeding you all the experience and the knowledge that you need to know uh, so that hopefully, you know, a year, maybe a year and a half, two years in, that paradigm kind of starts to shift back and you're able to start enabling them to, you know, grow and do what they need to do uh, to build themselves up so they can do whatever else they're wanting to go, mm-hmm. uh, wanting to go and do. And, and how has that approach worked out for you? Uh, I would say it worked out well. Um, I would also say that uh, your mileage may vary. I had a, a, I, you know, I won't lie to you. I had a pretty rock star tech uh, that I was, you know, supervising, um, and he took care of me. Uh, and I'll say that, you know, just from just from my experience, uh, not every NCO is going to be an absolute rock star uh, like this gentleman. Um, you know, some folks are, regardless of their rank, are just going to want to come in, do their job and go home. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. The Air Force needs those people, uh, you know, to do their thing. We don't need every airman that comes in doesn't necessarily need to put on chief. So, uh, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but you are going to have to make that evaluation up front and go, Hey, is this person going to be effectively growing me and cultivating me? Or do I need to start looking outside, whether it be to, you know, the CGOC, the company grade officer council, or other officers in my unit, if there are any senior NCOs. Um, and, I mean, honestly, even airmen, uh, it's kind of a unique position as a, as a WESO on the op floor working hand in hand with, you know, basically brand new uh, senior airmen, airmen first class and airmen, little a airmen. Uh, on an everyday basis, and you'd be surprised what you learn from some of them. Some of them, you know, they might be in A1C, uh, but they're 30-something years old. They've already had a career before joining the military, and it's uh, truly amazing what you can learn from, you know, the, the what we call the junior enlisted, uh, who may not necessarily be all that junior. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, another great takeaway, I think, would just be respect everybody you know treat everybody with respect uh they'll do the same for you but truly learn as much as you can from everybody you encounter whether it be good or bad you know i've i have seen good airmen i have seen not as good airmen i have had good supervisors i have had not as good supervisors um and you're gonna learn something if you're doing what you need to be doing, you're going to learn something from everybody, uh, whether it's something that, you know, I looked back and I said, Hey, the supervisor did this for me or did this, you know, so that I could grow. I want to do that now as a supervisor. I've also looked back and I've gone, you know, this, this supervisor did this and uh, I never want to do that to one of my, one of my troops ever. So could you give us an example of one of those might, what one of those might look like? could even be from your own experience you know i know you've been in for uh a a year and a half now and i'm sure that's given you plenty of times to make some mistakes that we can learn from (laughs) oh if you hadn't asked me i would have had some off the top of my head um yeah i would say be accountable be accountable to your actions um and again without going too in depth or anything uh basically ran into a situation where I was, I was at a board um, and kind of how this board works is it's a final determination for the commander uh, before you, you as a second Lieutenant get certified as a senior duty officer. Uh, Basically what that job entails is you're the person, you are the singular person that is running the floor and ensuring that it keeps running. Uh, So you know, once, once five o'clock hits and all the office workers go home, you're the highest ranking person in the room or in the, the entire building, really, uh, you're responsible for, you know, running the ops floor, um, no matter what's going on. Uh, and so there's, you know, kind of a, a pretty thorough vetting process for this. And so that board is the culmination of it. Uh, and I had a, a member of that board asked me a question 
And uh, it was one of those that I, I knew was coming up. And so I immediately had the answer and it was very simple. It was very just, you know, this program does this and it's just two weather programs that we use for, uh, for hurricane modeling. And it's, this program does this, this program does this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person that asked me the question was, hey, that's great. It was wrong, but that's great. And I'm kind of sitting there scratching my head going, no, that was definitely right because I studied it right off the, the study guide that I had. And uh, sure enough, I walked out of that room and I immediately looked at it and said, yeah, I was right. And uh, never heard anything about it from that member. Mm-hmm. And uh, now that they've they've gone and they've departed, I've brought it up once or twice to some other folks just kind of as a conversation piece. And uh, those people are like, yeah, that person talked to me about it afterwards and were like, yeah, I, I was totally wrong in that situation. Um, but that individual never approached me personally about it. Mm. Uh, and especially as a, as a supervisor or as someone in a position of power, if you're wrong, just admit to it. You know, you don't necessarily have to say it in front of the whole room full of people like, yep, that's my bad. I was wrong, but at least have the, have the integrity to, to follow up if you're ever in the wrong, or if you've ever handled a situation wrong, you know, getting more, uh, I guess, uh, away from the specific examples if you're in a situation you don't know what to do and you do something that's wrong or you tell an airman something that isn't necessarily the right way to go about something have the integrity to follow up with them and be like hey i i told you the wrong thing that's my bad you know i this is what i learned and i'll reattack from there so definitely having accountability makes that difference among um, among the wing there yeah that, that's that's definitely something to keep in mind well i think this is uh approaching the end of our podcast here so i think we're just gonna we're gonna wrap it up here but i just want to say again thank you very much for coming on second lieutenant hit for giving us a little insight into the world of a weather officer you know definitely something i know i've never heard of before something i was really um glad i did learn about today and you know definitely a niche afsc that if you're looking to go into this, um, you know, we definitely have the resources here now. So uh, appreciate you for coming on and uh, thank you for everything you do. Thank you for your service. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, It was nice meeting you, Daniel and Max. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Just thanks for having me on. (laughs) 